walking in newness of life. And, you know, if you're new to the kingdom, then a lot of this is new. But I also want to highlight the fact that many of us are, new, are not new to the kingdom. But this is very critical for us to re-examine what we've understood about this life that we've been given. We're walking in a new life. And I want to make a point here in the introduction. Again, I think I made this a few weeks ago. And this is not a message for those over there. Right? There are truths here that I'm wrestling with for me. That I, I, Lord, I want to know this more deeply. I want to really understand what is this new life you've given to me? And have I fallen prey to externalizing it in a way that I'm going through the motions, but I am lacking the heart that God intended me to have and to experience as I do that. Remember, when we began this series in Ezekiel 36. I'm just going to read something for you if you don't have to turn there because we're going to look at a bunch of scripture today. But remember, God chose to interrupt the religious setting of the day, the religious setting that he had created he had created a, a place where people gathered and they listened and they had revelation from God that was written on stone tablets. And that's how they related to God through that external revelation. But God said, you know, there's going to come a day when it's going to be different. Ezekiel prophesied about that day. Jeremiah prophesied about it. Ezekiel 36. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. This is what God is going to do. Now remember, this is a people who it's been 850 years of cyclical idolatry. We're going to do what God says. We're going to do what the people in the countryside say. We're going to do what God says. We're going to worship idols. And over and over and over again, this has been the cycle of their life. 850 years later, it's a miracle that God is still even speaking to them. That God even decides at all that He's going to initiate contact with a people who over and over and over again have walked away. And in this setting, they've done it yet again. So much so that God has finally decided. Remember, God told Isaiah, you know, the heart of worship is so gone from my people. They're still going through the motions. They still show up for the temple. They still bring some sacrifices, but the heart is so gone. It, it, it would please me more if you would just shut the doors and go away. But they wouldn't shut the doors. They wanted to hold on to their religion, and they wanted to serve sin and worship idols. So God shut the door, and that's where we are. God shut the door and said, you know, 70 years, you guys are out of here for 70 years. And so God closes down this external worship, but he, he steps in in grace and he says, there's coming a day where this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this on the inside of people. I'm going to cleanse them in verse 20, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Remember, Jeremiah adds that little nuance to the same prophecy by saying that God would write his laws upon their hearts. And the obvious contrast is that there was a place and a time when God's revelation and the impression of who God was was outside of you. It was written on stone and you brought your best efforts to this stone tablet, and you related to God, and you, you tried to get it going on in your life. But it was an external thing. God said, there's coming a day, though, where I'm going to change all that. And it won't be because you deserve it. They don't deserve this revelation from God even in this moment, and we don't deserve it ever coming to us. But there's coming a day when I'm going to intrude into your life, and I'm going to change this whole thing, and into the inside of you is going to come a new life. And that rock-hard heart that you had that didn't want to serve me, that was hostile to me, I'm going to remove it, and I'm going to put into you a soft, pliable heart, and I'm going to begin to shape it and mold it, and I'm going to write my laws on it. So that from the inside of you, you're going to experience a new life on the inside. And more than that, I'm not just going to remake you, I'm going to come inside of you by the Holy Spirit. 
So I'm going to animate you. I'm going to supply the voltage, the electricity for who you are going to be is going to be on the inside of you. That's the day that's coming. And the prophets look to that. The whole Old Testament looks to that. And when, when you get to, to seeing how God anticipated the day of the coming of the Spirit to indwell the hearts of men. It's one of the most anticipated events in all of the Bible. May only rivaled by the event that made it possible, the cross. So here all the Bible is looking forward to this. The day finally comes. We get into the new covenant. Jesus said, as Matt shared with us this morning, it is finished. It's finished. The work that needed to be done to satisfy God, it is finished. The new realm has come. We are in the day that Joel foresaw and Ezekiel foresaw and Jeremiah foresaw. Now you would think, what a day. Everybody would be bathing in this. But yet, look at these examples, and we'll look through them real quickly here. There continues to be a problem with people actually wanting to go back to externalized, works-oriented religion. Genesis, oh, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3. Turn to Galatians 3 with me. Hit a few verses here quickly. Galatians 3, the day that Ezekiel foresaw has already come. And yet, here in this church are people who are missing it. Listen to what Paul has to correct them about. Verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit... By works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Right? We go back to Ezekiel. This is what Ezekiel was talking about. This is the day Ezekiel foresaw. The day in which the Spirit would come and the ministry would be done by the Spirit. Now, how does one receive the Spirit? How, how did Ezekiel's prophecy come to the people of God? Was it that they had worked and finally got their act together and God said, you know, now, now I can show up. I can show up and do good to you guys. You finally become a church. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, this whole thing without spot and wrinkle. You know, I'm kind of seeing it happen. And you guys are so got it together now. Now I feel so motivated. I want to bless you with something greater than the old. No, remember, God comes in Ezekiel to a people who were absolutely the opposite of that. Hostile, idol worshipers, hearts away from God, uninterested. God having to say, you won't even go away. Go away. But in the midst of going away, God steps in and says, I'm going to lavish grace upon you. So did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or did you just receive it by faith because God said, I'm going to do this. Just open wide and receive. That's all God was asking. Well, that's what God had to correct in Galatia. Look in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, now listen, I, ultimately this verse has to do with someone who has put their dependence upon the works of the Old Testament system that really are, most folks are misinformed. It never did require us to be sanct, uh, satisfying God by our works. So, but you put your faith in the works of that system. The moment you do that, that's what Galatians talks about. You have fallen from grace. You're no longer receiving from God on the basis of grace. So ultimately, this is a, this is a passage that's about the, the curse of man's own works ever trying to satisfy God. Now today, because you know, we don't live in the system of the old covenant. We don't sacrifice animals. No one came here today and parked their ox outside waiting for us with our blades to come out and cut the heads off and fling the uh, uh, blood everywhere in the sanctuary here. We don't, we don't do that. 
But we still have this tendency to introduce laws into our relationship with God. And so now, now I'm somehow trying to get on God's good side with observing some kind of activity on my part. Now listen, the moment you do that, you have cursed the motivating factors of your life. Because the moment you base what God's going to do next in your life on what you have done to butter him up or stroke the genie, what you've done is you've cursed yourself. Because I don't know how you are, but I'm, I'm, I'm inconsistent. I can have a good day and then four lousy days and then three good ones. And, and, and see, I know myself. I'm almost 45 years old now, so I've got a track record. I've proven myself to me. So I know that if I'm having a great day, I know a lousy one's coming. So if I'm thinking, you know, God, God is going to break out in my life. My family's going to be blessed. This is going to happen. The church, oh, all these good things are going to happen because I'm having some good days. But in the back of my mind, I know the bad days are coming. And so if I'm thinking I'm sort of buttering up God to get God to do on my behalf based on my efforts, my my mind is now cursing me, telling me this is all coming to an end. Your little house of cards is going to come down, Keith. It'll just be a matter of days. Right? And then you, you know, you guys here especially, you know, you have this principle that gets into you. So you go to do ministry and you start wondering, okay, what have I, what have I done that either qualifies me to do something extraordinary for God? Or, you know, oh, I had that terrible thought this morning when I got up. I had that terrible thought. God's probably saying, that's it. I'm done. I'm with you. You had that thought this morning. You woke up. You know what I'm talking about. I am done with you. Right? And so you get this sense that, we're, you know, we're, we're causing God to do all that he does. Listen, grace, and this is the thing that causes us to want to abuse grace. Grace is that unpredictable thing on the leash to the heart of God only. And he will unleash it on your life whenever he wants. And when you look in Ezekiel, that's exactly what he did. There was, there was no worthiness in this crowd in Ezekiel. God says, I, there's coming a day where I'm going I'm to clean you. I'm going to wash you from your sins. I'm going I'm to overcome the idols in your life. I'm going to give you a new heart. God's going to do all these things after 850 years of sinning against him consistently. And God says, but see, that's the thing about grace. Grace comes and trumps what we deserve. Grace shows up and gives us what we don't deserve. Now, we said last week, and you have to get the message from last week, if that's the way grace is, well, then why not just sin all the more, right? Well, that's a whole other message. Go get the tape from last week. Look at here. Galatians weren't the only one. Turn back a few books to, to 1 Timothy. This is maybe about 15 years later after Galatians. Different set of folks, but still, same problem. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. <clears throat> Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good. Some people need to read that a couple of times. We know that the law is good. It's not the law that's a problem. If one uses it lawfully... Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now listen, catch this real quick. The law is for those. Remember last week, we looked at the verse where Paul says, and such were some of you, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. Right? This regenerative work has changed who you are. Now, catch this, because if the law is for them, then what's for us? 
Right, how many, and I said, I'll say this again this week. How many of us know sometimes Christianity is like joining a bad fraternity? It's like before you're saved, you share this, oh, it's grace, it's grace, it's grace. God loves you. He loves you just as you are right now. Come to him. God knows, you know, he knows there's a mess, but he loves you. And then you get on the other side of being saved, and all of a sudden, all the rules seem to change. It's like now, yeah, now, now we're worried about this. You've got to change that. You've got to fix this. God will not tolerate that. That's been in your life for too long. And it's almost like we've taken the law and we've applied grace to the lost people and the law to the saved. Listen, the sinner needs to hear the law. The sinner needs to be convinced. I, I, don't, I don't measure up to God. I'm inadequate. I'm greedy. I'm selfish. Listen, this is a great list. These are, these are great lists because most people are like, hey, I've never murdered anybody. You know, I'm not a pervert. Uh, okay, are you greedy? Are you an American? I mean, right? I mean, you guys got it easy here in New Orleans. Just find some verses to talk about drunkenness. You're in New Orleans. I mean, everybody qualifies for that one here. Uh, the reality is, it, it's, it's, it's more that people don't have God's standard. You know, they got their own, so they qualify for their own standard. Well, if you take their standard away and give them God's standard, now you don't qualify. What are you going to do now? Well, I'm just going to try harder. All right, well, how hard do you have to try to please a perfect God? How good do you have to be? How long do you have to keep it going? Do you, what if you fail once? Right? You, have, you have an issue here. So the law is to show people the righteousness of God so that you and I can find ourselves somewhere falling short of it. And then it's performed its task. Now I know I can't now pick the law and say, oh, the law shows me I fall short. Here, let, let me use it now to save myself. No, all it, does, it shows you you fall short. And convinces you, now I need a savior. I need the grace of God. If I'm ever going to be saved, God's going to have to be merciful to me, a sinner. Then we get saved and we get on the other side of being saved. Don't go grabbing all these laws now and saying, okay, now here's how I'm going to stay a Christian. I'm going to apply all these laws to my life. No, no, no. This great verse in 1 Timothy 1.5. Here was the goal of Paul's teaching. I put put it in the Amplified in your notes. It says, whereas the object and purpose of our instruction and charge is love, which springs from a pure heart and a good, clear conscience and a sincere, unfeigned faith. I love that springing aspect. It issues forth, the Bible says. Well, where would that come from? Where would this combustive, powerful immersion coming out of your life come? Where would that come from? Ezekiel 36. There's coming a day when your cold, stone, unresponsive heart, I'm going to remove it. And I'm going to put a new heart in you. And I'm going to infuse that new heart with the power of my spirit. So that you will walk in my ways. See, God actually is going to pull this thing off in people like us. Where's the motivation for my life going to come from? Well, it's not going to come from what Jesus found fault with the Pharisees. Remember, this generation, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. See, where does the motivation for Christian come from? It comes from his heart. It comes from his new heart that God now has infused and written his, his word upon and given us the power of the Spirit to live. Uh, listen, if we miss this, all we're left with, as we said last week, is rules to keep us in bounds. And that's exactly what the fault was here. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If you pick it up and you misuse it, then it's not good anymore. Right? Okay, now, remember, we don't have any animals here today, but we all got our Bibles with us. We have a Bible reading plan with us. We have our devotion time. We have, you know quiet times that we have with God. We have sin that we're wrestling with. So, so we have our own system, right? It's, it doesn't involve animals and there's no blades involved. But it involves activity that we call sacred. And those things are good as well if one uses them correctly. If you begin to use them incorrectly, then they are just as bad as the law misused in the Old Testament. Look at this great thought from... C.J. Mahaney in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, he says various spiritual activities, such as Bible reading, prayer, sharing the gospel, that are good and vital in themselves when pursued for the right reasons. But often, without realizing it, we allow a dangerous shift to take place in our mind and heart. We change what God intends as a means of experiencing grace into a means of earning grace. 
Do you see the difference? So this is that thing that, you know, you guys are going out, you're going to minister. Yeah. Have, you, have you read your Bible enough? Have you prayed enough to earn the grace of God so that God will go with you in power? Now listen, you know, we believe in prayer times and we, we base a lot of what we do on prayer meetings. We encourage people. You know, all those activities are important, but for what reason? They are a means of us experiencing the grace of God. They're not a means of us earning the grace of God. Right? Just like Ezekiel's day. It's not that you offer enough, do enough, to where finally you've turned the screws enough time to where God says, okay, okay, here comes grace. You finally have read enough Bible passages. You finally got past that point. No, that's not, that's not why we do it. All right, one more example. And you can keep one finger here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll come back to that one. Yet another group, yet another time frame. This is probably in between both Galatians and Timothy. And look, yet another group. Missing out on Ezekiel 36 and what God had in mind. Verse 17. Paul says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Now, now he is contrasting the ministry and the whole, this whole chapter is going to be a contrast of the ministry of the new covenant against the backdrop of the ministry of the old covenant. And apparently the reason why Paul's having to address this is because there are ministers in the midst of the Corinthians who are still borrowing these old principles and pulling them into the church. So again, third time here, we could just make ourselves at home in the New Testament over and over and over addressing the fact that what Ezekiel had in mind has been abandoned. And we're back using external principles to guide and manipulate our lives. In verse 1 of there, chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Right? This is the day. This is what God had in mind. And Paul is saying, you know what, I'm, min- I'm a minister of the new covenant. I- I'm not a minister of the old, written on stone ideas. I'm a minister of the new covenant. And you know what, your lives manifest that. He says, when God said, I'm going to put these laws within you, I'm going to give you my spirit, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways. Well, these guys are actually pulling it off. So they're actually living the way in which God had in mind. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So here's the contrast, and I just want to catch our attention on this. Why in the New Testament is so much energy being devoted to addressing this topic over and over and over again? Because the incredible day that Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel foresaw is for some reason in us so easily and quickly abandoned. I don't know what it is about us that we so... It's like, you know, we're, our car pulls to the left. <laughs> and as soon as we let go of the steering wheel, boom, the, just, the car just begins to drift into external rules and paying attention to all that we've learned as Christians and that we're supposed to be doing and uh, how we feel about our walk and about God and about measuring ourselves all based on what we're doing and what we're not doing. That's the same problem in the first century church and it's still the problem today. And there's not a one of us here who's exempt from it. Nobody should be sitting here this morning going, ah, man... I've been saved 30 years. And man, brother, preach it. <laughs> like somebody here needs to hear that. It ain't me, but I'm, man, whoo, bring it on, bro. You ever notice that if anybody preaches on legalism, you can always get amens? It doesn't matter what church you're in. You know, because the legalists are always somebody else besides us. Always. Amen, man. Amen. And legalism is everywhere. You know, your wife is living with you, okay? She knows. She's looking at you like, you're the worst. <laughs> Here's the great danger in your outline. Danger of externalizing and minimizing. Externalizing the control and motivational mechanisms of the Christian life. Externalizing them. No longer the explosion of the heart that God has won and transformed, finding its way out here. 
now we've made Christianity into external rules and expectations that we now have to live up to. Right? I mean, you're here today. Are, are, you, are you here today out of a heart with a passion to be in the presence of God? Uh, not because it buys you points with Him. Not because it keeps your small group leader off your back. Not because the pastors may give you a phone call. Not because somebody may say, yeah, I haven't seen you in church for two weeks. You know, all these... Listen, I'm not saying it's wrong for any of us to follow up with each other and care for each other. But when you and I start going through the motions, because that's what's guiding us, we have externalized things that God meant to be internalized. Second, we are minimizing the divine component in exchange for the human component, which is where I want to focus today. We're minimizing the divine component in exchange for the human component. Here's what I mean by that. First, God is something. Right? He's defined. God is something and we are something. So you got God in this equation, you got us in the equation. God does something and we do something. Both of these are in the equation of the Christian life. But which one am I more focused on? Which one is my default setting? Is it more on who I am? than it is who God is. Right? I mean, we all have our baggage, you know, whether it's nice baggage. There's some of us here this morning where, well, we're just shy, you know. Just, we're just shy. That's just kind of, I've always been that way, just shy. And so we kind of live within our shy definition of who we are, or we're just angry, or we're just unorganized, or we're just alcoholics, or we're just whatever it is we are. We've been it for a long time. That's who we are. And see... When you start talking about change and growth and the ability to experience the life of God, it bumps into whoever it is that you think you are. Now, is that your default setting? If I bump into you, you're more aware of who you are, you're more aware of who God is. See, too many of us are too much aware of who we are. And we bring that to God as though, you know, well, that's what I'm focused on. That's big. Dude, I've been, I've been struggling with this area since I was 14 years old, man. And you, don't, you have no idea. And, you know, we've rehearsed it. We can present it. Right? We're, we're the best, most effective public speakers about ourselves. And we can convince other people that this is who I am, this is who I'm always going to be. Because our default setting is more about who we are than it is about who God is. And then we, we look at what God does and we look at what we do. And we're more aware of what we do and what we're supposed to do than it is about what God has done and will do. And so we're, we're paying attention to whether or not our lives are good enough, whether or not we're dealing with that sin issue, whether or not we can show our face because we told some people that we wouldn't do that anymore and we did, whether or not we have been reading our Bible, whether or not we have been praying enough. Right? We're focused on what we do. And if we feel like we're doing a good job, then we feel good about our life. We feel good about our walk because we're more focused on what we do than we are on what God has done and will do. Let me introduce us to two balancing thoughts here. And I do say balancing. Last week we... Talked about our parliamentary group here yelling for what that which means the most to us as we gather together. Well, here's another opportunity to yell. You have these things in Scripture called indicative statements and imperative statements. It's good just to, every once in a while, these are just good grammar words. I should get an amen from Peter. Thank you. I think you're a little slow on that one. Indicatives and imperatives. These are just grammar words. If you skip grammar, here, this is a freebie. An indicative is a verb expressing... A simple statement of fact, rather than something imagined, wished, or commanded. An indicative statement is just stating a matter of fact. This is the fact. This is true. An imperative statement, or an imperative verb, is a verb that expresses a command or an exhortation. Right? So when you make an imperative statement... You are giving an exhortation. You're giving a command, right? If you have children in your home, you do this a lot. You just tell them what to do, right? That's an imperative statement. Well, you know, the Bible is filled with both of these. Now, we said last week, okay, everybody remember who you are, right? Because you like one of these and you don't like the other one. It depends on who you are. Not everybody's the same. Some people just love the indicative statements. Indicative statements are what God has done, what God will do. God will be faithful to you. Oh, amen. Hallelujah. God has accomplished forgiveness in the cross. Oh, oh, thank you, Lord. That's oh, that's what I love about this church. And then you scoot over here and you make an imperative statement. Stop sinning. 
Be responsible. Put off this behavior. Oh, here he goes. Here he goes. You know, you know I thought this was a grace-oriented church, and then all of a sudden there's all this do's and don'ts. Right? Can you read the Bible with me? Right? Let's read the Bible together. Romans chapter 6. We loved this passage last week. Let's see if we still love it this week. <laughs> Depending on who you are. Romans 6 verse 1. The invitation to licentious living. What shall we say then? Or would he continue in sin that grace may abound, right? Should the Christian just continue in sin because grace, it's up to God. And God will trump your unbelief and you can be unfaithful and God will still be faithful, right? So we might as well go on sinning, right? By no means. How? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now I want you to stay with me because this first section is all indicatives. It's all statements. It's facts. It's not calling on you to make them true. They are true, whether you ever read them before, whether you believe them or not, whether you're living well today or not. They're true for the Christian, regardless of anything else. God has made them true. How can we who who died to sin still live in it? That's happened. That's an indicative statement about you. You've died to sin. Do you not know that all of us, who've been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. Did you know that you were baptized into Christ and into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, how many of us contributed into this event? Right? You, you, Christ died long before in a timeline you and I ever existed. So for this to be true of you, it had to have been true because God made it true and you were not involved. It's not as though every time somebody gets saved, Jesus gets crucified afresh. It's like, oh, oh, you've chosen me and you'd like to be included in me. Okay, you work your way in and then I'll go die again for you. No, that's not how it happens. One death for all, for all time. And so that one death, you were either in that death or you were not in it ever. Well, if you were in it, how did you, what did you do to get in it? Well, it occurred before I existed. So I guess God must have done something here. Exactly. God's done this. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with or brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Did you know that your old Man, your old self, was crucified with Christ. That's an indicative statement. It's not an imperative statement. It's not a statement that says, go out and get your old man crucified. Go take care of that. Before you can start the Christian life, you need to go do that. It's not an imperative statement. It's an indicative statement. It's already happened. It's a fact, and we're just being informed about it. Verse 7. For one who has died, one who has died already has been set free from sin already. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Okay, now stop. Okay, all these great things that we were just informed about, this has already occurred for us. It is a true statement of what God has done on our behalf. Now we're going to turn a corner, and indicatives are going to give way to imperatives. This is the Bible. We're still in the Bible. Verse 11. So you also must, you must, you, You must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing you must do. God has already done. But you must, you must believe it. You must be convinced of it. You must own it. You must must actually act as though it is true. That's what you must do. So now now we're imperatives. Okay, now listen. Well, what, what if I don't? Right? And this is where this goes. And quite honestly, I can't rescue you from that. That's exactly where you go. Because at the end of this series, which we have tilted in the direction of indicatives on purpose, when we get to the end of it, everybody's going to be asking this question, and I think we'll do a week on this. 
You get to the end and you say, okay, Keith, that all sounds great. Wow, God's done amazing things, Ezekiel 36. Woo, man, awesome. Okay, how come it don't look that way for me? Okay, it's not going to be because God has failed. All right, so at some point here, guess what? You and I are going to get back in the equation here. And we're going to get in in places just like this. You must consider yourselves. You must reckon or count yourselves dead to sin. Well, I haven't done that. Okay, well, you're living in the fallout of that then. You are experiencing not having done the imperative of what the Bible said to do. And then it gets more specific as well. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, so now, now stop sinning. Stop. Well, we started with the question, uh, if this is how grace is, well, then why not just keep on sinning? And he loads us up on indicative statements. Here's why. Because of all that God has done. Because of what He's done for you and in you. That's why now you stop sinning. Now the imperative comes. Right? Do you understand? This is, they're both in the Bible. Right? Listen, some of us love the imperatives. Right? Let me remember not to leave you guys out. Some of you love to be told what to do. You love, you love that hard word. Bring me a hard word. Love message on holiness. You know, you just love that. All this mamby pamby forgiveness and grace. And it's, you know, people take abuse of that. And listen, you know, you're the, you're the other side yelling at these people on the other side of the aisle, you know. But these are both in the Bible. It's both the truth. And it's vital that we appreciate it. Do not present your members to sin. All right. Not only don't, don't go on sinning, but don't even present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Now listen, why does sin have no dominion over you? Be very careful here. Sin will have no dominion over you, not because you're on a hot streak. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Grace, which Ezekiel shows us, comes whether you deserve it or not, and you don't deserve it. So why does sin not have any dominion over you? Because, man, I've been in my word every day. I'm prayed up. Prayed up. I mean, I, I got it going on, man. I mean, I've been staying away. That sin I used to have a problem with, no more. So sin doesn't have dominion over me. Oh, wow. You have just yoked yourself. What I said earlier, you just yoked yourself to your performance. And, okay, now, now read tomorrow's headlines because you know what it's going to look like. You can pull that off for a few days, right? But what happens when you don't? Now, all of a sudden, God's not for you anymore. And the grace of God is not available to you anymore. Listen, this is not Ezekiel 36 we're talking about. This is the problem in the New Testament church. This is the problem in Lakeview Christian Center. This is the problem in the church world today. We've moved away from that which should be exploding on the inside of us to provide us with motivation to do for the glory of God. And we've made it about external things. Now, let me just say that there's a need here to finding the right balance. All right, there's a place in Scripture for these indicative things that God has done for us just to get before God and behold God. Right? We study ourselves. Right? We wake up in the morning gazing at our navels. There's a place for us to get released from that and behold God and look upon Him and, and sort of get those horse blinders on and just, oh, I, only want to, I only want to gaze upon, I want to take in and drink in God. And when you begin to do that, you begin to take the character of God. Revealed in the things that God has done. And you take passages like this and they begin to become real and you begin to see God. See, there's, there's a realm here in which I think I titled the message, Charging Your Batteries. There's a realm here in which the indicative things of God, the things that are true about God all the time, the things that He has done for us no matter what, those things, when you get around them, it's like they charge your spiritual batteries. And now you're ready for imperatives. Now you're ready to be told Go do this. Yes, I go do this. But I don't go do this in order to get that to be true. I go do it because I have seen and observed that it is true. How many of you guys have rechargeable batteries at home? You know what I'm talking about? You got a laptop? Right? You got a rechargeable battery. Right? My kids have rechargeable batteries for a little Wii computer game. You know? And just like their game, I've got a laptop. You know, you plug the thing in, it charges up. You know, nobody loves the charging process, do you? Now you just, oh, let's just charge the batteries today. <laughs> uh, plug it in and we'll just sit there. No, we don't need to play the game. This is really cool. You know, nobody loves charging the batteries. 
And so, you know, and I catch my kids doing this. You know, they'll put the thing in. It's got a little meter thing. And it's when it gets char- fully charged, it's ready. But, but we don't want to wait anymore. We want to play. So, you know, so it's half charged. Pull it off there. I do the same thing with my laptop. You know, it's charging up. I got stuff to do. I got to do. I got stuff to do. Right? So I, I, need to, I need to make use of this. It doesn't need to charge any longer. See, this is a Christian life. Minimum charging and much doing. Minimum charging and much doing. Right? So, yeah, we're too busy getting stuff done. We've got important things to do. We've got a kingdom to advance, and we've got children to raise, and we've got right living to take care of, and we've got serving, and we've got jobs, and we've got a lot of doing, but we don't have a lot of charging taking place, so we get around something with a little goofy little devotional thing you can read in about three minutes and try to, like, like quick charge, three seconds, and then I'm off doing. And, you know, we think that little quick charge. You ever try and quick charge something and then go use it? Like, you know, like we've got this, this we fit thing, right? It's, a, it's our attempt at physical fitness in our home. So it's all this stuff you can do electronically. And so, you know, as soon as we get it, you know, and we, have, we actually got some rechargeable batteries. And so we, we took them right out of the box there and just, you know, not even charging them. Just put them in and use them, right? I mean, that's almost like, let's just, let's just use this stuff. Let's just do. But if I don't charge on a revelation of God, beholding Him, being affected by Him, and all I do is turn my Christianity into doing, listen, you, your power is going to run out very quickly, and you're going to be living a very frustrated Christian life. You're going to hate this thing. I'm just warning you. Because it gets bigger and bigger and harder and harder, and you feel like you can never keep up. Listen, imperatives are important, but they serve a role alongside indicatives. Look, indicatives... Indicatives sustain and supply faith. And I get around the indicatives of who God is and what He's done on my behalf and for His own glory. uh, It sustains and supplies faith. I begin to believe big things based on what I see in God. Indicatives promote and inspire motivation. You get lethargic, you're just not moving in the Christian life. It's because I'm not seeing God, not tasting and seeing the goodness of God and being affected by it. Yeah, remember Isaiah, I think this was mentioned earlier. Isaiah gets in the presence of God and he sees and beholds God. Remember he says, oh, woe is me. Right? He's seeing the holiness of God. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people who are unclean. And in that moment, that exchange, God does something. And the seraphim, awesome pick up tongs and take hot coals and, and cleanse his lips, right? I mean, he's experiencing, he's being reminded of God's ability to cleanse of sin. It's about what God does, right? He doesn't go over there and get a bar of soap and wash his mouth out and look at it. God, by his grace, comes aware of the condemnation being experienced by Isaiah. And God comes and cleanses his lips. And then, then all of a sudden, God starts talking about the mission. And what, is, what does Isaiah do? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Motivated. I want to go. Why did he want to go? Because he's been charged by the revelation of God. He's seen God. He's tasted God. The indicatives of what God has done and what he's experienced in his life. Right? This, is the, this is that Psalm 73, as we talked through that a few weeks ago. That encounter with the person whose eyes are looking into the world and they're envious of what everybody else has until the moment when he goes into the sanctuary of God. It's like a reset button. All of a sudden, everything begins to make sense. The world begins to orient in its right place. And God is amazing and majestic. And he's drawn. And he concludes the psalm by saying, you know, the, no, no, the nearness of God is my good. See, there's a place where we need the indicatives of who God is and what he's done. Now, we need imperatives. Imperatives contribute to growth and maturity. If all you ever do is just sit around and absorb and absorb and absorb, you will not grow. Hey, listen, there's too many of us who are living this very safe Christian life and we love Bible studies. Love Bible studies. We don't ever want to do anything with what we're learning, but we love to learn more. Right? I mean, we've kind of stripped down Bible studies here. We're probably imbalanced and need to go back in the other direction. But, you know, for too many years, I think we were probably like many churches, just feed and feed and feed and feed and feed. And, if, you know, if you had an audience, you were doing Christianity. No. Ain't nobody doing anything. There's no steps of faith. There's no advancing in the kingdom. There's no taking a risk. Right, so we love to just absorb. But listen, you can't grow if all you're doing is learning and listening. You grow by doing. 
So there's an important place where you actually do step out in imperatives and do them. Look at this quick little chart I put in your outline there. Look at this quickly about Abraham. Remember Abraham? God visits Abraham, gives him a revelation of himself in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. God reveals himself to Abraham, who's an idol worshiper at this point, right? Grace of God comes to Abram. He is not signed on for the grace of God. He's not cleaned his act up. He's an idol worshiper in Ur. And here comes God, and he reveals himself. And he blows Abram's mind. So much so that Abram opens and receives by faith this revelation of God. So faith then receives the indicative revelation of God. James 2 says, Abram... Believe God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then that faith begins to go to work, and works are generated by faith. Listen, if there's real faith in our life, it wants to squeeze its way out of us. It wants to get out. It's an exploding thing on the inside that wants to emerge now. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive. Right? God called him. God reveals himself first. Indicative. Here I am. I'm God. And then God calls him, gives him an imperative, and says, Now go, Abraham, to the place I'm going to show you. And Abraham says, Yes, I'm going. Now when he goes, the fourth thing, maturity and growth results from the actions of faith. Right? James 2 says, You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. That word for completed actually means it was matured. So here he comes, he takes a step of faith, he, he listens, he receives something from God, he doesn't just say, wow, I had this incredible encounter with God and do nothing with it. He encounters God and then by faith he takes a step into what he's experienced before God. And he takes another step. And the Bible says that his works of obedience was working to complete or mature his faith. So what it started with Abram was, was little, grew and grew and grew and grew and grew until it was enormous. See, it, it is obedience. It is observing the imperatives that give opportunity for us to grow. If all we do is listen and learn, listen and learn, we'll never grow. So you do need to observe the, these. All right, let me skip to this last point before we run out of time. How do we address an insufficient walk? We've been talking about it all the way up to this. How do we address an insufficient walk? And I don't want to ask for a show of hands, but really, how many of us today in our Christian lives just, just feel insufficient? Right? I mean, you remember when you were lost, remember the rules. Again, these rules can change. You know, you're on this side of knowing Christ, and, and all you got to do is just like stay out of jail and pay your taxes every other year, and you're a decent person. And on the other side over here, you get saved, and now. Now you, you have to serve the community and the body of Christ and, and you have to be minimizing sin and attitudes in your life. And, you know, we don't want to see pride there. Uh, and we want to raise kids that you know, walk on water and they're incredible. And, and then husbands are supposed to be great leaders in the home and they're supposed to wash their wife with the water of the word. So now we have to know the word and we have to lead our wives in knowing the word. And wives are supposed to submit to goofballs. Even if you're a goofball, you're still called to submit. You've got a bad husband, you can't take him back. You just submit. I mean, you've got all these things now. Like, look, you know, if you didn't hit him over here or burn the house down while he was sleeping at night, you were a decent person. But now, now over here, as a Christian, all the rules have changed. And it's so much harder. So, I mean, really, how many of us feel sufficient for this thing? This is hard. God's come on the scene and everything that we were about doing before has gone to a whole new level now. How many of us feel sufficient? How many of us feel just, you know, my walk is failing? I'm I'm not keeping up with this stuff. I mean, I can barely keep up with my Bible reading. I saw something, all these guys are going out to witness, man. (laughs) I feel guilty just having them in the building here, you know. I'm not doing enough. Right? And that's what we're aware of. Insufficiency. Are you still there in 2 Corinthians? End of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul brings up this issue of insufficiency. Verse 14. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That's quite a statement. Everywhere. The fragrance of the knowledge of God through you being spread into your marriage, into your home, 
into your job setting where you can't stand the boss, he can't stand you, it's a dead-end, terrible job, but the knowledge of Christ is being spread everywhere through you. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Who on earth can pull that off in every setting of our life to be a fragrance, an aroma of Christ? How is that going to happen? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Right? On our worst days, when we're not in a church meeting, when we're yelling at our kids, because that's how we normally speak to them, when we're clicking the remote control because far from serving our wives, we hardly even notice she exists. Right? These are the realities that creep into our life. You know, the fragrance of Christ in everything. Who is sufficient for that? See, if you create this treadmill to run on, I'm telling you, as long as you keep your rules down to about two or three, you might feel good about yourself on most days. But you'd start spreading it out. Right? We're having a parenting seminar. You want to load up on some guilt? Y'all go ahead and come to that. Right? You get to hear all the things that parenting is supposed to be and all the things you're doing. Right? I mean, I've gotten to where, you know, I taught a bunch of parenting stuff right when I was starting to have children. Now, I don't want to teach on it anymore. I don't want to do it. I've got seven kids. They're all older. And I don't want to teach on parenting anymore. I just, you know, I don't want to do it. It was much easier just to teach on it than it was to do it. To be a parent is much harder than actually reading the book on being parents. Well, so you can walk away feeling real guilty. I'm failing in things that matter. Well, how do you fix all this? Well, who is sufficient for any of this stuff? Well, Paul is going to work against these other people who are preaching a different message. Right? And he he picks it up. Verse 5, chapter 3. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Listen, the letter kills. If you take a set of rules and hold them up before your life and try and say, I'm supposed to do this, that that letter will kill you. Because it won't help you at all. It will sit down in its chair and it will give you its list of demands and it will say, this is what you're supposed to be. Go do it. But, you know, well, wait, I can't, I've been trying 45 years. I can't, I can't do it. Well, I can't help you. I'm just a letter. I'm just written on stone. I can't help you. But great news. God said there'd be a day when I would send my spirit in you. And I would cause you to walk in my statues. And I would write them on your heart. They wouldn't just be external rules out there that you're just trying to make sure you pull it off. I'm coming on the inside of you. Who is sufficient for this? The new covenant Christian is sufficient for this. By the Spirit, with words of God written on my heart, dwelling on the inside, wanting to fly out of me. I am sufficient. For that. But if I go back to the old, and apparently Paul's having to tell these guys this because there's teachers in the church who are trying to get guys to go back to the old way of doing things. And they got an audience. And it's all too easy to get one. Well, let me close with this thought. And you can go ahead and get ready to come up. Where, where do we start with this? If you've got some sufficiency problems in your walk, how, how do we fix this? Remember, there's indicatives and there's imperatives. If you want to fix this, don't start with the imperatives. Start with the indicatives. Start with what God has done. Start with who God is. You already know enough about yourself, all right? Right? You know, you know you're a slacker in certain categories. I mean, you could, you could write a book. But the problem is I've spent so little time charging myself on who God is on what he's already done, on what's already been accomplished that I didn't even realize has been accomplished in my life, that I'm trying to step out into imperatives without any power, without any strength. Look at this last thought here. In verse 12 of chapter 3. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, 
who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. If that didn't fit in your theology, make sure it does. Not only do you have a stone on the outside of you, you got a veil over your face and you can't even see the right thing anyway. It remains unlifted because only through Christ, only through Christ is this veil taken away. Verse 15. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They're stony, hard hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's an indicative statement. It doesn't say, when you turn to the Lord, remember to remove the veil. Right? It it takes 58 days of straight Bible reading and crawling across glass and much prayer to get that veil removed. Make sure you take care of that. Christian life won't work if you don't do that. No, when one comes to Christ, the veil is removed. It's removed. It's done. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Thank you, Ezekiel. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Well, I don't feel real free. I'm not asking you whether you feel free. I'm asking you whether the Bible tells you there's freedom or not. That's an indicative statement. I need to hang around that statement until I become convinced of it. And we all, with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We all now with unveiled face, I'm charging up here, are beholding the glory of the Lord. And what's the outcome of beholding the glory of the Lord? We are being transformed from glory to glory. Let me come back to that point in just a second. But if you were to walk into chapter 4, now here comes the imperatives. The imperatives are coming back. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper. See, you see, when you behold God and the indicatives become alive in you, all of a sudden now you're renouncing things and you're refusing things. Are you living at the fence line trying to say what you can and can't do? No, no, no. You've beheld something in God to where there's this internal work now. I renounce those things. I don't want those things anymore. That's the effect of having behold the glory of God and seeing the indicative work that God has done on our behalf. Now listen, let me teach you a little trick here. I don't know. Sometimes your eyes will do this. I don't know if you have eyes like mine, but sometimes I look straight at something and I sort of can't make it. You, know, you, just, you almost got to look right to the edge of it to see it. There's certain things that are like that. Transformation is like that. If you want to grow in holiness, the way to grow in holiness is not to try to grow in holiness. The way to be transformed is not to make transformation the object of my attention. The way to grow in holiness and the way to be transformed is to behold the glory of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let's stand up together. Lord, thank you for this new day that we live in. An unparalleled, radical, amazing concept that you had in mind. When external rules that were joined to weak human intentions that could never produce in us the life that we long for. But they met that day, Lord, when you said you would do what we can never do. You would step in and do what we were incapable of doing. And you would be with us forever to do in us what we could never do. God, what we could never do. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for letting us know it was coming. Thank you for the passion of a Jeremiah and Ezekiel and a Joel that saw a day. A day when we would walk in newness of life. A day when we would be different people. A day when these 
stone hearts would be removed. A day when our allegiance to sin would be broken by the cross and a new king would come, one that we love with all of our hearts. Lord, this morning, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a pure heart, from a heart that's been made new, a heart that's had fresh writing by the Spirit of God upon it, a heart that's infused with the presence of the Spirit of God. Oh God, keep us from being a people who have defaulted back into external rules to guide us, to restrict us. Lord, may it be that today you open our eyes to see what I am most in need of is to behold the glory of God. And Lord, as we sing this song, Lord, I pray that you would pull back the effect of that veil. Lord, we know the veil is gone. It's gone. It's no longer there, Lord. Lord, we don't pray in order to get it to be gone. We don't read our Bibles to get it to be gone. Lord, we don't purchase these things by our activity. They are done already for us. Lord, help us to enter into and receive by faith that which is true. May we see you in your glory. In Jesus' name.